Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of our series uh, in Deuteronomy according to an alien and we're now embarking in part 10 and we're this morning we're just going to be exploring uh, chapter 16 and 17 and uh, customarily before we begin the sermon uh, let's just go and watch a video clip that kind of allude to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Here's going to happen. I am going to have to fix you, manage you to, on a more personal scale, a, a more micro form of management. Jim, what is that called? Micro treatment. Boom. Yes. Now, Jim is going to be the client. Dwight, you're going to have to sell to him without being aggressive, hostile, or difficult. Let's go. All right, fine. <clears throat> Fruit from the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Well, wow, that's great, because I need paper. Excellent, then you are in luck, because we are having a limited-time offer only on everything. Wow, this is my lucky day. Ask him his name. What is your name, sir? I am Bill Butlicker. Really, that's your real name? How dare you? My family built this country, by the way. Be respectful, Dwight, please. Uh, yes, Michael. Could you hold on one second? That's my other one. What? No, but I... Hello? I'm just on the phone with this stupid salesman. He's so dumb. Probably just going to keep him on the line forever and not buy anything. <laughs> okay. It's up to you to change his mind. Sorry. That was a family emergency. Oh, no. What's wrong? You know what? That's private. Boundaries, Dwight. Come I'm, on. I'm sorry, Mr. Butler. As I was saying, <sighs> we're having a limited... Speak up a little bit louder. I'm hard of hearing. I'm sorry if he's an old man. Okay. As I was saying, right now, yeah, we are having... Talk louder. Okay. Our prices have never been lower. Son, you have to talk louder. Never been lower. Louder, right. son! Buttmaker! Our prices have never been lower! Stop it! That is totally inappropriate. You never yell at the client. You now never you listen to me, sir. Here we go. The three words I would describe you as is aggressive, yes. hostile, and definitely difficult. Please, Mr. Butler. I'm irate right give now. Me the phone. Please give me He's another chance. Give me the phone. Mr. Butler. Give me the phone. I have to put you on with my boss. Well, I should hope so. Who is this? Hello, this is Michael Scott, regional manager. Well, this is William M. Butlicker. Hello, Mr. Butlicker. How may we help you? Michael, I like the sound of your voice. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy $1 million worth of paper products today. <laughs> See how it's done? Thank you very much, sir. I don't think you'll regret it. You are the master. There is one condition, Michael. Yes. You have to fire the salesman that treated me so terribly. Don't do it, Michael. Okay, welcome back. <clears throat> so this morning I want to talk about leadership. As you can see, uh, uh, this episode from The Office, uh, Michael is uh, one type of form of leadership. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, from, the previous, from my prior work experience, uh, I had many bosses, uh, a lot of, and um, I could say that each boss that I encountered each one of them had a different definition of what a leader should be. And so one boss would say, oh, Jonathan, you have to be really aggressive or an assertive. Another boss would say, I should be more bold and confident. Another boss probably would say, I need to be taller. Or another boss would say, man, like if only you, know, you were very organized and extroverted and talk more and have more ideas and innovation. 
Is that what a leader should be? Is that what a godly leader should be? Because sometimes I fear that when we're choosing godly leaders as well, like pastors or elders, sometimes uh, we fall into that trap as well into, in expecting that these elders and pastors or deacons need to fulfill that type of paradigm that we encounter out there in the world, that these elders need to be tall or assertive, confident, or have a lot of credentials like being a doctor or have some three letters at the end of the name to, to show some authority. Is that what a godly leader should be like? And also, would it be safe to say that if we keep on imposing these leadership qualities onto people, that these individuals, including ourselves, we would give up taking leadership roles? Like saying that if I'm not born with those uh, type of skill sets or if I do not have the energy or the capacity to work myself up in order to get those qualities, then I'm no leader that I shouldn't take any leadership roles. That if, uh, that it has to be a burden or a chore to just try to be more gregarious and more extroverted, which I'm not, or, uh, or more bold and confident, why should I take on those roles then? It's too much of a work, too much of a hassle. And so this morning, I wanna say that godly leadership is none of those things. In fact, godly leadership is something more of a inward response to what has already been done for us. Godly leadership is spirit-informed, spirit-nurtured, and spirit-enabled. And in order to have that, have the spirit in us, we have to respond well. In order for the spirit to do that, though, we just have to respond. And I would love to say that this morning, I hope this neck, whatever we're going to be talking about coming up, uh, following a, like right now as we speak, you're going to be encouraged and just feel relieved that godly leadership is not something of a burden, but more of a response, something simpler, something that the world have not seen yet, something that the world doesn't even understand. And so let's go on. So why am I talking about leadership when really in chapter 16 and 17, for those who are familiar with these chapters, it's actually about festivals and stoning people. Why am I talking about leadership when, uh, when, when it's talking about those things? Like where did John get leadership from? Well, let's begin. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 16. God through Moses details the instructions in celebrating each of the festivals, right? We look at it, it goes festivals of weeks, festival of tabernacles, festival of unleavened bread. I'm not going to explain all these festivals because really we are blessed with the digital age and we are now consumed by Google. So you could just quickly Google those things and you'll figure yourself out on what those things are. But really what I'm here to do is uh, I'm going to approach it in a, in the same similar fashion as well, how I approach the other chapters. And it, really it's about what sticks out to me in these chapters. And I'm a simple guy. What usually sticks out in these chapters, like you've already known, like throughout the journey that we've been through, is whatever is repeated. And so I found some of the repeated phrases here. So if you have your Bibles, go to verse 11, 14, and 16. Verse 11, And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless and widows living among you. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and widows who live in your towns. That's repeated. 
16. Three times a year all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of leavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, we don't celebrate these festivals anymore, right? As Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10 explains, they are no longer applicable now that Jesus is here. But here is the principle to learn from this chapter, even though we don't celebrate these festivals. It's our role. Whether we be celebrating contemporary festivals such as Christmas, marriage, baptism, and communion, or we are just living life, i.e. working, playing, taking care of our kids, there is a leadership principle that we can take away for ourselves in this chapter. A leadership principle that God desires from us, a quality that God desires from us. Here, let me explain. In these verses that we just read, who is the assumed audience? The parents the heads of the household. And in verse 16, we know that in the Jewish culture, that would be primarily men. However, for our purpose, God's target audience are the leaders, leaders of the household. Yes, that includes mom and dad, the parents. But remember, back then, the leaders of the household are also entailed the leaders of business, the leaders of trade, the leaders in all types of work and professions, because the leaders of the household are in charge of those things, the leaders of finance. So. It's not just leadership in the household, but leadership in all facets of life. What quality is God looking for in leaders and also enabled by his Holy Spirit so that we can be leaders according to his definition? What is it? It's two. Two words, joy and generosity. Take a look at what God through Moses told the leaders. Be joyful in front of, in the midst of, those who you are caring for, i.e. sons, daughters, male, female servants, Levites, foreigners, fatherless, widows. So to contemporize, we can include employees, co-workers, colleagues, friends, and family. Be joyful in front of those people. Be joyful in front of everyone you encounter. So interesting enough, to be God's leader, God's quality of what he desires from us as leaders is to be joyful. Why? Well, I didn't include this verse, but here it is. In verse 12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. That is interesting. God again reminds us, reminds his chosen people, sorry, of Egypt, that they were once slaves in Egypt and now they are free. We, as, we as Christians were once slaves in our sin. We were once slaves, uh, enslaved by the penalty of sin, which is death. We were enslaved by sin and we kept on wallowing in our pride and self-defeatedness. So we were shown grace and mercy and we were shown salvation from our own Egypt. And so what does God require of us again as a leader? Joyfulness. And why are we joyful then? Because we are grateful. We are grateful for what God has done for us already. What God has done for us, is, which is to save us from our sin through Jesus Christ. So the first characteristic of being a godly leader is to actually present joyfulness, joyful contentment because of what God has done. It is actually a response more than something that we have to work for. It is more of a response as opposed to trying something that is burdensome and something that we have to be born with or born with. Something, it's more of a response that is actually empowered by the Holy Spirit because when we receive Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, when we're saved through God's grace and mercy, the Holy Spirit enters into us to enable us to respond appropriately, which is joyfulness. 
And so as your pastor, would I be a pastor? Would I be a good spiritual leader or any leader if I do not show joy uh, in the midst of you? If I don't show joy, does, that, does it really mean that I actually am grateful of what God has done for me? True godly leaders should present, exhibit a life of joy, joyfulness. Now, I don't mean a, like everyday happy clappy and almost bubbly uh, like day in and day out, but authentic joy, joyful contentment. You're not born with it. You can't possibly work for it. It's more of a response of being grateful what God has done for us. Okay, let's move on. So that's joyfulness and also generosity. Notice what he said at the end, God through Moses. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. This means that we as leaders, when we are grateful of what, we, what God has given to us, we can't help but to love others generously. And so the qualities of a leader is joyfulness and generosity. Let's move on. Deuteronomy 17, verse 1 to 13. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. If a man or a woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. That was going to be fun to talk about. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, uh, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the Levitical priests, <clears throat> or uh, yeah, go to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire them, and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. Anyone who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. Again, you must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. You see, at first read, this sounds really awful. How can God command people to stone their own people for doing evil in the eyes of the Lord or doing something that is detestable to them? Well, let's work this through and see what God truly desires of us and the qualities that he desires us to have as leaders. If you noticed what I bolded, you'll realize that I bolded the common theme, evil. So what's evil? God mentions right in the beginning, giving God's second best or the leftovers is detestable and evil. Francis Chan did a sermon about giving God the best, and he gave an example by eating a fried chicken drumstick and giving God just the leftover meat of the drumstick. I would go even further. Where is our heart at with our money and our stuff? If God desired the best, the first fruits of what you have, i.e. the very things that you depend on, would you give it to him or would you be tight-fisted and give him the leftovers? For example, would Rosanna and I be willing to give up our daughter Annabelle to him for his purpose if he called her to ministry? Or would we be tight-fisted and hold her back because ministry makes no money 
and she will likely be unable to support us when we are old. If God tells us to give up our homes, our cars, our valuables, our money to him, would we be able to do that? <clears throat> Why would we be so tight-fisted? Well, what is the next detestable or evil thing that violates his covenant with us? God says through Moses, worship other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars, and the sky. In other words, putting anything other than God first is, just, is detestable or evil thing that violates his covenant. So let's be honest. If we are tight-fisted, if we are hesitant or unwilling to give God our best, especially our best effort, especially our excellence to him, we have to ask ourselves, who are we worshiping? Who is our God? See, we have to remember, as I have to remember as a parent as well, I dwelled on this verse, and I was wondering, you know what, if I put in my best to raise Annabelle, as a, uh, Annabelle up, would I be willing to give her up to God because God deserves the best? See, God desires all of us, and most importantly, he desires our best in our giving, our best in our ministry, our best at our work, our best in our worship, because we invested our time and energy and commitment into doing and being our best. God desires us to give it to him. Now, why does God deserve our best? It's because God gave his best to us, his son, Jesus Christ, the one who had no sin, no blemish, the perfect spotless lamb who sacrificed himself for each of us. Again, this is not naturally born in us. It's not something we force ourselves to do. It's more of a response to what God has already done. We do our best, give our best, because God deserves our best. Because he gave his best for us. And if we don't give our best to God, who are we really worshiping then? Or are we really truly grateful for what God has already given us? So leadership, again, is more of a response, a response to what, uh, a response to God's grace and mercy. So when we look at the punishment of stoning, who in all Israel can say, uh, I'm sorry, so when we look at the punishment of stoning, who in all of Israel can say that they have no sin in light of what we, we just discussed? That every day they have no sin and have not done a single evil in sight of God. That they can claim that they have never put anything ahead of God. Who can really make that claim? Who can any of us make that claim to execute the judgment on behalf of God on someone else? Because if Paul is right, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then Israel would have not existed. We wouldn't have the Old Testament because everybody would have stoned each other and the stoner would be stoned himself or herself. Think about it this way. Just picture that person. At the end of the day, that person is the only one left on the planet and that person has to hold up a stone to stone herself. So this passage about story is not so much focused on the punishment, but to remind God's chosen people to fear the Lord, i.e. to take it really serious when we love God with our, with our all and to seriously continue to purge the evil that resides in our hearts. That's how this passage concluded, to continually repent of anything we did that's evil in sight of the Lord. So the next quality of leadership is humility. God desires us to be humble and admit that we have sinned and have fallen short. God desires his people to lead with godly humility, i.e. fearing the Lord. Now, a practical application to summarize what we've gone through is kings. But before we go on to that next passage about kings, let's do a quick review. God desires his people to lead by example by having these qualities, joyful gratitude, faithful excellence, and godly humility. Okay, let's go on to kings. 
When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let's send a king over us like all the nations around us, verse 15, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among you fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This remaining passage is quite self-explanatory. If you followed along, you probably noticed that what qualities God desires from a king is pretty much what the same qualities that we just discussed. The qualities that desire that God desires from us. Why is it important for this king who is leading Israel to be an Israelite? Well, how can I be a pastor of you if I never experience the saving grace and salvation from God? How can I exhibit joyful gratitude and be an example of a person of joyfulness if I never experience God's saving hand? Then, there is accumulation of wealth from horses to wives to silver and gold. Notice the warning that they may be tempted to go back to Egypt. We know now that Egypt is used as a metaphor, i.e. the old self. Notice that accumulation not only tempts us to go back to our old self, it also removes God from being the priority. We are tempted to become tight-fisted, not give God excellence, nor does it really help with our humility. This is actually detestable to God. So let me conclude with this. Leadership is not something to be born with nor is it something to be forced out. It's the allowance of the Holy Spirit to enable us to respond appropriately to God's saving grace that he showed toward us. It's allowing the Holy Spirit enable us to respond to God's love, joyful gratitude, faithful excellence, and godly humility. That is what it means to be a leader. In fact, that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In order to be a disciple, we are always often called to be a light to the nations. We're often called to take up the mantle and follow Christ. It's almost to a point that sometimes, so whenever we hear the word discipleship, it's almost like this cavalier waving a flag and trying to just like, almost like colonize everything. But is it really about that? Is godly leadership about being so militaristic and, and combative? No. Being a godly leader is more about responding to God's grace well and to actually show it. To show that how much we are so grateful of God's grace, joyful gratitude, faithful excellence, and godly humility is how we should respond. And we can only do that when we receive the Holy Spirit, i.e. receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you so much. Till next week, have a blessed week.